Last week when we were together, we introduced and began together a season of 40 days of prayer and fasting. We laid out some instruction as to how that 40 days was going to unfold in the form of this booklet. There are probably quite a few of you within this service, if you were in the 11 o'clock service last week, who were not able to get an actual um, paper copy of the 40-day plan for prayer and fasting. Those are available to you in the lobby and uh, I think even over in guest reception this morning. You can uh, pick one up. You can also access those on your Longview Point Baptist Church app or on the website, uh, but in any event, those are available to you. One of the things that I hope that we're warring against with 40 days of prayer and fasting is, is this thing that seems to be so commonplace, especially in the Bible Belt and within cultural Christianity, where Jesus is our Sunday morning God for our Sunday morning religion. Now, I just want to reinforce for you today that Jesus is not interested in being your Sunday morning God for your Sunday morning religion. He is, however, interested in being the Lord over every scintilla of every second of our life. Jesus will not be the prince in your, in your life's experience, but he will be the king of your life. And I believe he desires to do so. One of, one of the things that I, I hope we're combating with 40 days of prayer and fasting is this idea that Jesus is there for Sundays to be worshiped and we sort of accommodate him on Sunday, but he's not intrusive into the rest of our life. And, and, and I, I hope that 40 days of prayer and fasting will, will keep us together as a congregation and us individually on task and discipline within our daily life to abide in Christ, to labor, to be brought near the one who desires to draw near to us. So I hope that you'll get your hands on a copy of the booklet before you get away today and be helped by that. There's some devotional material or insights on each day and a topic that we're praying through or addressing in our personal life and even a missions focus with people groups and planners and missionaries that we're encouraging you to be in prayer for. I got several questions over the past few days about fasting and what the approach to fasting with a 40-day time of prayer and fasting looks like. My encouragement last week and my encouragement this morning is to identify a day of the week that you'll commit to abstaining from foods, health permitting obviously, and uh, use that as the reminder, the prompt for you on that day to stay attuned to God in prayer and to consider the deep and utter need that we have for the presence and the provision of Jesus in each of our lives. We need him every hour. And he's a good and faithful God who seeks to draw near his people. We're, we are uh, looking really at four different uh, categories or four major focuses in the 40 days of prayer and fasting. The first of those you've been working through, they're, they're not always apparent and we've not spelled them out uh, overtly in the booklet, but, but there are four themes that hold the entirety of the 40-day uh, booklet together. Abide, connect, serve and share, to abide in Christ, to be connected with the body of Christ in small groups and in the corporate assembly of God's church, to be connected, to be serving, serving within the context of the church and serving the world around us as well, and then sharing the good news of the gospel. We're looking at each of those over the next few weeks. This morning, our topic is abiding. There's not a better passage in all the Bible, as far as I know, to consider abiding in Christ than John chapter 15. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me to John 15 and verse 1, 
And let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. John 15, beginning in verse number 1. Here's what the Bible says, Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are certain things, I think, that we do as a church, certain things that we do as Christians that simply don't resonate with the world. I was thinking of the song that we were singing earlier about, about fear, that our fear doesn't stand a chance. I, I don't know that fear, in the sense intended, is really an issue for the world around us. Now, it is an ever-present concern for Christians who've grappled with the claim of the gospel on their life and the sacrifice that comes along with that and the commission that God has placed on our life to take the good news of the gospel into all the world. That's just one example. But I, I, think, I think that apart from the work of God's Spirit in us, that what Jesus invites us to in this passage may not resonate either. That apart from the work of God's Spirit in our... I'm not sure that in the world there's a great deal of interest in abiding in Christ. I, I, I don't think that, that there's intrigue in the heart of the unbeliever when we speak of enjoying fellowship with Jesus. But boy, there ought to be a lot in the heart of the believer when we hear the promise of Jesus that we may have fellowship with him, that we may abide in him even as he abides in us. That God in heaven would invite us to enjoy fellowship with him should turn our hearts in powerful ways. This is essentially the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the central message of Christianity. That God has loved us so much that in spite of our sin, he would send his son, that his son would become our substitute, that he would die, that by his blood, our sin would be washed away. That we would be accredited with the righteousness of Jesus. That is, God would look upon us as though we had committed the goodness of Jesus. And do, and do so justifiably because he had looked upon his son at the cross as though he had committed our unrighteousness. 
And that through that sacrifice, we have been reconciled with the Father so that God who is in heaven, perfect in his righteousness, might invite us into fellowship with him. The central message of Christianity, the central message of the gospel is that God invites us to abide with him. Jesus makes it possible through his death, burial, and resurrection. But the impetus for the gospel is that God desires fellowship with his people. Look at what the Bible says in chapter 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vineyard keeper. Jesus is setting up the illustration here in verses 1 and 2. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So in the illustration that Jesus is building here, God the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine, and we are the branches. God the Father is the vineyard keeper who looks out for the interest of the vineyard, cutting off those branches that are not fruitful, pruning back those branches that bear fruit so as to optimize their potential for fruit production. And Jesus is the life-giving source of provision that serves as the vine for every branch. The job of the vine dresser, the job of the father, the, the job of the vine keeper is to cut off the bad branches and to prune back the good. Which means that all of us are subject to the cutting authority of the vine dresser. Either being cut off entirely for our lack of producing fruit or pruned back for potential when fruit begins to bear forth in our life. Both of these sort of sound like painful experiences in the illustration. And by experience, either of them can prove to be. Either by being cut off or unbelief, outright cut off, and as Jesus describes later in the illustration, bound up and withering away and cast into judgment. Or more positively, for those of us who come under the, the pruning of the vine dresser, the cutting back of the Father, so that our potential for bearing fruit might be maximized in this life. The Father is at work on us, purifying and sanctifying the body that is the vine, cutting off and casting out and pruning back. When the vine dresser begins to go to work on your life and my life, Oftentimes we find that things that we hold far too dear are cut away. A painful experience, that one, but one that can result in the ability to produce great fruit in the days that lie ahead. This is essentially the illustration. Now, uh, vineyard keeping is not popular in the Deep South, understandably. But, uh, but, but where some, some of you old heads know a little something about muscadines. Uh, we knew something about that where I grew up. And so you've seen a little of this. And if not, you're familiar enough with gardening and landscaping that the illustration, it holds up, right? You understand how this works. 
I haven't spent a great deal of time around vineyards in this sense either, but I've seen enough to know that in the pruning season, what you observe can be surprising. Often the vines, uh, the branches are cut back to such an extent that you would assume they'll not survive the process of pruning. Not only does the vine dresser strip us bare, he leaves us in a position to survive and to survive fruitfully moving forward. In verse 3, Jesus says something that seems so out of place. He says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, listen, Jesus just said, if you don't bear fruit at all, you'll just be cut out. And if you bear fruit, there's still some parts of your life that the Father is going to cut out. You should come away from verse 2 with some fear and trepidation. And then he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. This is just good Christian doctrine. This is the way the New Testament does theology, by the way. By creating these points of tension, unresolved tension. We know this by experience, and if you'll read your Bible closely, you'll you'll know this through the Word of God. We are saved, and we are sealed, and we are sanctified by the work of Jesus. And yet we are sinful people wrestling with unrighteousness, being sanctified by the presence of God's Spirit in us. Both are true. These are competing truths. We are instructed to walk with confidence and assurance in our salvation, given what Jesus has done for us. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to perfection until the end. And at the same time, to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. What Jesus calls the true believer to do in the illustration of the true vine is to be who we are in him. You are already clean, Jesus says, because of the word that was spoken to you. Now, with the threat of pruning and cutting off, hanging over your head, be who you are in the gospel. I think sometimes we're, we're far too quick to be dismissive of those warning passages in the Bible. Those texts that, that are foreboding, that, that speak of the difficulties and the judgments and the disciplines that stand to come against us when we turn our back on the word and the will of God. There is judgment for sin. And yet there is confident assurance in the compassion and the mercies of Jesus Christ for us. This is exactly what Jesus does in verse 3. Now, the illustration continues in verse 4, where Jesus says, Remain in me, or abide in me. Stick with me. Dwell with me. Fellowship with me. Be with me. Jesus says, Be with me, and I in you. This is the invitation, right? Jesus says, abide in me and I abide in you. Stay with me. Stick with me. Enjoy fellowship and friendship and the joy that comes from that sense of connection. This is a beautiful thing, right? Abide in me. It's a simple little three-word command. And yet we'll spend the rest of our days laboring to honor what Jesus has invited us to do here. 
So a lot of you started out last Sunday, you're here last Sunday, and you threw open that little booklet and you made all kinds of grand plans in front of that booklet <laughs> with regards to your prayer life and what you were going to do devotionally, who you're going to pray for and all that. And by Sunday night, you had been so busy and so tired. And then Monday, you had to go to work and it was crazy. And you thought, well, we'll get it together tomorrow. And here we are, we're a weekend of 40 days and, and you have been under the almost constant assault of Satan on your life in the form of busyness and distraction and frustration and various other things that perhaps you had no control over whatsoever. I, 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 don't, I don't know that Satan isn't more actively at work in distracting us from the main things than anything else in this world. And here we are a weekend and, and many of you already beset in whatever grand schemes you had for this season of, of 40 days. And I just want to say to you again that the call of God on our life this morning is to abide in Him and He in us. To enjoy fellowship with Jesus. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. You know why you run busily to the next task on your list of things to do before spending time in fellowship and in prayer? Because you've convinced yourself that you can do it in your own power. If I can just catch up, if I can get these things done, then I'll spend time in, in quiet meditation and contemplation of who God is, what His Word says, and what He's promised He'd do in my life. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Not, not only is, is what you're doing not productive in an eternally significant way, it is counterproductive. Oh, you can do something. You can make a great big fat mess. But in terms of doing something that's eternally significant, something that will matter 10,000 years from now, something that will broaden the borders of the kingdom of God, something that would usher in the work of the gospel in this world, you can do nothing apart from Christ. You are bent on sin. You are inclined toward evil. Everything that you do turns into a mess. You touch it, it turns to mud. But in Christ, we are empowered. The provision of the true vine for the branch that is found in him is sufficient to produce great fruit. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And the more often you insist upon this in your heart, the greater depth of thought you give to this in your personal life, the better off you will be. The better off we all are. Now, the contrast to noting that apart from Christ we can do nothing is to note that in Christ, that in Christ we have the ability to bear much fruit. Look to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Abide in Christ and produce fruit. Do you know why you're a mess? Because you're not abiding in Christ. You know why you're grouchy and difficult and hard to live with? With because you're not abiding in Christ. Do you know why someone else is pleasant and peaceful and easy to abide with? Because they are abiding in Christ. Do you know why you don't feel compelled to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, compassionate toward the sinner and the sick and the needy? Because you're not abiding in Christ. Do you know where that comes from in your neighbor that loves the lost and shares the gospel faithfully? It comes from abiding in Christ. There really is a spiritual answer to all of your natural 
difficulties, and it is to abide in Jesus as he abides in you. This is our source of power. This is where the provision comes from. Cut off the branch, and it has no ability. No dead cut-off branch ever bore a single iota of fruit, but for the branch that remains in the true vine, who is Jesus Christ, there is an abundance of fruit. The struggles, the difficulties in our life are the product of our failure to abide in Christ. Those are just the facts. Now, we may not like them, but those are the facts. So we attribute things to disposition, right? We've had this discussion in my house more times than I can count. This is just the way we are. That's the way we like to think, right? It is the way you are, which is why it is essential to abide in Christ. Yes, 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 you are a mess. So it is essential that you would abide in Christ. And in doing so, there is great fruit. And this is not just like evangelistic or disciple-making fruit where others are coming to faith through your ministry or growing in grace. This is just the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering. That, that we're just the kind of people who have Jesus all over us, who walk with a gladness in our heart at what Christ has done for us, whose countenance is lifted high, whose joy is maximized because of who God is in our life. Abide in Christ and bear much fruit. This is the invitation of Jesus on our life to abide in him even as he abides in us. You can do nothing without Jesus. So today, today, when you leave and you get busy, because this is what we do, right? We make commitments at church. And then we get busy when we leave and we fail to keep the commitments that we made at church. I, I hope that when the busy... What, what, here's, if, you, if you go through this 40 days of prayer and fasting, what you're going to discern is that this is really not about 40 days of prayer and fasting. This is about a 40-day fight that I hope instills some disciplines that equips us to, to better abide in Christ in the months and years and even decades that, that lie ahead. And, and, and we're, we're even, even I, I talk in terms of what the Lord might do through this whole experience. God might do some great work. You know what the great work is? The great work is abiding in Jesus. Abide, we get to abide in Jesus. You, you and me, we get to abide in Jesus. We get to enjoy fellowship with the one who bled and died for us. The God who made the universe, who is above all things, we get to abide in Jesus. I was thinking this morning, there have been a few times in my life when I was called by an authority, a governing authority, or even a, a celebrity figure to come to a certain place, into a certain room for a certain occasion to meet them and the kind of uneasiness that can come with that and excitement that comes with being called into the company of someone of some significance. And here this morning, we have heard from heaven that Jesus says, come and enjoy fellowship with me, not for a moment, but for the rest of eternity. Abide in me as I abide in you. This is a remarkable thing. This is the great work of God, that we could abide in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, long for this, want for this. And even as I say it, even as it turns my heart, even as it moves me emotionally, I know that there are some among us who think, eh, 
And the starting place for you has to be to pray and ask that God would turn the desires of your heart and make you long for heavenly things. That he would jerk your head and your heart out of the rubbish of this world and set your affections on those praiseworthy things. What you'll find in Jesus cannot be matched by anything that this world has to offer. Jesus says, abide in me. Look to verse 6. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. This is that severe part of our passage, right? These are not those who came to faith and then defected. These are those who feigned coming to faith and then proved their unbelief by defection. Think of who the author of the Gospel of John is. Maybe this will be fresh enough in your minds to remember the Apostle John, the same Apostle John who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We, we sometimes we forget about the historical context of the Gospels because they're narrative and they're communicating to us the life and times of Jesus. But there's always a real audience, an immediate congregation that would have received the Gospel of John as well. Those parishioners under the care of the Apostle John. We know from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that a major issue within John's church, the the church that John was leading, shepherding, the church within which he was an elder, a major issue within that church was defection. There were some who came into the church and they seemed to be believers in the beginning, but over the course of time, usually for moral reasons, this is how it usually works out, for moral reasons, they adapted their doctrine to accommodate their immorality and they left the church. And John said, they were among us, but they went out from us in order that it might be made manifest or it might be shown, it might be proven that they were never with us in the first place. The same same John reflects here on the teachings of Jesus. If a branch fails to bear fruit, it is removed by the keeper of the vineyard, cast aside where it withers away, and will ultimately be bundled up with the rest of the unfruitful branches and cast into the fire, seemingly representative of the judgment of God here in our illustration. There are other examples of this Uh, removal experience that Jesus describes here. Think of where we are in the Gospel of John. Think of where we are in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John chapter 14 through 17 records what are essentially the last words of Jesus to his band of disciples down to the prayer that he prays for them in John chapter 17. He begins by encouraging them in John 14, remember, you've believed in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled in my Father's house or many mansions. Remember that? Jesus is comforting them even before his death is experienced as a loss for those disciples. Jesus says what he says in John 14 through 17 in the company of a very few people. But within that band of listeners was a man named Judas who had marched about with Jesus for the past three plus years. He had been named and numbered among the disciples, believed by all who would have observed him following after Jesus, that he was a part of the faith family. He was one of the twelve. He's not just a run-of-the-mill Christian. He's in the inner circle. And yet within uh, moments of Jesus saying what he says in John 15 concerning the removal of unfruitful branches, Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss 
And ultimately, Judas's betrayal would result in Jesus's crucifixion on the cross. We need to be warned, cautioned by the example of those defectors in 1 John and the example of Judas in our, pa in our passage here, that we be very careful. We don't need to be too quickly dismissive of the warning passages of the Bible that call us to a healthy, wholesome fear of the Lord. The branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off, cast aside, wither away, and burned up in judgment. Brothers and sisters, in the true vine, in Jesus is the only place that will be kept safe from the judgment of God that is to come. This language of being in Christ or in the vine, sometimes I think we hear that a little differently than what it's intended. We are positionally by faith in Christ. Think of Genesis 6 and the ark where Noah constructs a great boat and for more than a hundred years invites humanity to join him to take shelter in the ark against the flood of God's wrath that was to come. When all was said and done, only Noah and his family boarded the boat. The door was closed and the rain began to fall. In the ark, Noah and his family took shelter from the wrath of God that came in the rains that flooded the earth. By faith in Jesus... At the invitation of generations of gospel preachers, in Jesus we have taken our shelter. And one day the door will be closed. And for those of us who have found a place of safety in the body of Jesus, we will be kept, we will be protected, we will be sheltered from the wrath of God that is to come. In Christ is the only safe place from the judgment of God that is to come. Amen. Are you glad for that? Yes. Jesus says in verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. There, there'll be those, maybe even this morning, who will manipulate and distort that verse into something it was never intended as being. But Jesus has said to the church, insomuch as you are abiding in me and I in you, ask whatever you want, and I'll make it my delight to provide for your need. Are you encouraged by that? Now, now think of the times that we uh, run by the prayer closet, that we leave off the time of fellowship with Jesus so that we can hustle about the day to get the next thing done. And yet Jesus is beckoning, saying, hey, if you'll ask me, I'll provide it. Ask me what you need. And in so much it accords with abiding in me and my abiding in you, I'm delighted. I am pleased to provide it. Here, here, prayer is an essential part of our abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. Don't, don't, don't miss this. Because 
what, what I don't want you to, to come away from this morning's message with is that the way to abide in Jesus, I just need to try to keep all these commands sorted out in my life and be as obedient as I can possibly be. I've noticed in my own experience in the past few days, trying to be especially focused on abiding in Jesus, that focusing on abiding in Jesus just by nature empowers my ability to honor some of these commands. But that's a much different thing than simply focusing on obeying these specific commands. If you're struggling with a specific sin in your life and, and you're not having victory over that, and the temptation is overwhelming you and dragging you down, and you've just been struggling with that for a long time, could I just encourage you to stop focusing on obeying the specific command that calls you away from that? Focus on abiding in Christ and note the power that comes with abiding in Christ to overcome the sin that so easily ensnares us. Jesus says, settle down here. This is one of the reasons why this message doesn't resonate with the world. Jesus says, cool your jets. Spend some time in prayer with me. Delight in the fellowship that we stand to have. And this is really the remedy to all our issues. I don't have nine action steps for you this morning. What I have for you is be still and know that you are not God. Amen. Jesus says, come and, and ask Share in the sweetness of fellowship that we stand to have one with another. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. This is astonishing, right? In verse 8, the Bible says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God is glorifying himself through saving a people all his own. This is how God brings glory to himself. By saving sinful people like me and you, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. God is saving sinners and in doing so drawing glory and honor to his name. God desires to save sinners as a means of bringing glory and honor and praise to himself. The invitation is that we would abide in him as we abide in him through the blood of Jesus. God is greatly glorified. God is busily about this matter of bringing glory and honor and praise to his name by saving sinners from within the world. This is what he does. This is what he's done in my life. God has glorified himself in saving me from my sin, having chosen the weak and foolish things of the world to confine the wise and to bind the strong. God saves the sinner for the glory of his name. Even this morning, God is actively at work in the hearts of some of you gathered here this morning, shaping and refining, doing the work of the vine dresser and pruning back your life. And in other cases, calling you away from a life of sin to abide in his son, Jesus Christ, even as his son abides in you. And he does it all so that the world might give him glory, praise, and honor. In this, my Father is glorified that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God is glorified when we bear fruit in our lives. And in doing so, we not only bring glory to him, but we prove that we are his disciples. 
I know in this deep south cultural Christianity, there is a, 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 a false form of salvation that sees conversion as this transaction that's conducted at an altar somewhere, and we move away from that unaffected, unchanged by that experience, and then we amble into heaven at the end of this earthly life. But what Jesus makes abundantly clear and what is clear in every page of the New Testament is that there simply is no fruitless Christian experience. That those who have been touched by the power of the gospel are profoundly changed by the power of the gospel. That we bear fruit worthy of repentance and regeneration. Fruit that proves that we are his disciples. Consequently, the absence of that kind of fruit in our life ought to cause us to hit the brakes and examine ourselves to see that we are truly in the faith. Rather, to see if we are truly in the faith or perhaps not truly in the faith. This morning, I want you to know that God who is in heaven, perfect in his righteousness, has invited me and he's invited you to fellowship with him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, our, our appetite is so conditioned to the things of this world. Sometimes I fear we don't have a taste for what is truly good. Father, I pray that you would shake us from our slumber, that you would help us to look up and away from the things of this world. I pray that you would create in us heavenly longings, that we would want to abide in Christ, to abide with Christ, and he to abide in us more than anything that this world could offer. God, we, we have to confess that in our sin, God, we attach ourselves to things here, and if we're really honest, God, and you see our hearts, there are times when we want for the things of this world more than we desire to be with you. God, we confess it as sin. We ask that you'd forgive us, that you'd cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, that you would condition our heart that we would want for the right things, that we would want for you. That you'd lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, God. Give us a heart to discern the heavenly from the worldly, the good from the bad, the right from the evil. God, I pray that the joy of your people would be to walk in fellowship with your son. And that you'd forgive us when that's not our delight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.